you are listening to Pushing Beyond the Obvious, where we help entrepreneurs succeed. Hi, Dave. Thanks a lot for taking time and talking to us today. That's great to be here. Thanks for having me. <laughs> so uh, before we can move forward, can I uh, ask you to introduce yourself, the body of work that you've done and how all of that has can, kind of conspired for us having this conversation today? Uh, well, you might need to help me with that, but uh, uh, my name is Dave Gray. I, uh, I'm a uh, entrepreneur and an artist. I started uh, as a journalist doing information graphics for newspapers, and then I started a company called Explain, uh, focused on explaining complex and potentially confusing business topics visually. And uh, I pretty much have, you know, uh, pursued that path. I suppose that um, uh, I suppose that it's really focused, my focus has been on um, creativity, creativity in creating uh, businesses, but also creativity in creating uh, a life. And uh, I think it's many entrepreneurs are driven by, entrepreneurs are driven by different things. But uh, for me, it was very much about creating the life that I wanted to lead. So. I guess that, and that, how you how that came to be of interest to you, I, I cannot answer. You will have can, to answer that. For yeah, me. I'll answer that. So I was actually um, um, looking at um, uh, probably in last year. I was in Singapore and I was talking to a couple of friends of mine, and I am um, a design thinking coach. And I was asking someone, you know, as to know if there is any interesting book that I should read, and. Uh, Gamestorming came up and they said that no, this is a book that you should definitely uh, read because I do a lot of facilitate a lot of workshops and that's how I kind of liked uh, uh, and started following uh, the kind of work that you do and then uh, I reached out to you I think if I'm not wrong in September of last year asking uh, if you if we can do a conversation around your new book which was liminal thinking which was about to come out at that point in time and that's and you responded and kind of that's how this entire thing happened. We just found time now. It's like almost five months after <laughs> we connected. <laughs> Wonderful. Yeah. So um, uh, maybe you know if 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 you can let me know uh, the entire idea of game storming. So where did that come from? I think you also collaborated with a couple of other um, uh, co-authors on that. So how was that experience like? Well, game storming came out of. Uh, so I had. Um, I had uh, been working in the newspaper business for about 10 years doing information uh, design, information graphics, and it was I started my company because it became clear that the newspaper business was not uh, the business of the future, and uh, I had found this, uh, I guess what I would call this art form that I really love to, uh, to do, which is the, the art of visual explanation, explaining things visually, and so I felt... There was, a, there was going to be a need for this regardless of whether the people were reading newspapers or not, that people would still um, have things that they wanted to get up to speed on quickly and they would still uh, enjoy looking at uh, pictures and uh, visual explanations. And so um, that was the first step, was starting a company. Uh, and how this became game-storming was uh, I discovered as you know one of the first problems you have in any business that's successful is trying to scale it and we had reached a point in the company where um, uh, I was somewhat trapped I was the only person who was able to do this uh, this thing that 
You know, we, we, we have plenty of people who could do the illustration work, but uh, we needed a way to um, scale this ability that I had uh, to interview people and groups and synthesize the knowledge from the group into a, a, a sketch, a very high-level visual architecture. And so, um, GameStorming came out of that. It was a uh, it was a way to systematize and scale this uh, consulting activity that prior to GameStorming had been very intuitive and uh, self-directed. There's a there's a phrase that I I used for many years and still use whenever it's appropriate, which is the idea of turn turn your magic into science. And it comes from a quote, I think, by Arthur C. Clarke, who said that any sufficiently advanced science uh, looks like magic. So if you don't understand the science, it looks like magic. But um, all magic can be uh, uh, turned into science. So the idea behind game-storming was there's a lot of there's a lot of things, and it's game, the idea is behind game streaming and almost any technology. There are a lot of things that um, mass people have mastered that they have the ability to do that looks uh, seamless and it looks like magic. Um, and if you can find a way to take your magic as a practitioner of anything and, and translate that into science, and in other words, turn it into recipes or uh, uh, other things that can make that magic repeatable and learnable. Then you can you can scale uh, things in a way that feels magical in itself. So, game streaming started out as a slide deck. Okay, um, you know, um, was started by me kind of trying to take a position behind myself and observe what I was actually doing and trying to deconstruct it, which is not easy as you can imagine. Uh, but trying to deconstruct. Okay, well, why did I do that? Why did I ask that question at this moment? Why did I? Why was I? Why did I insist that we have the room set up in this way, etc.? And it began that way, and then it started becoming a collection. There, there was a, a lot of other people who were doing similar things, um, and uh, it started out as this kind of a mission to turn that magic of the what we call the whiteboard session or a visualization session into some kind of a science. And uh, we started. Uh, uh, collecting our own ideas, but also a lot of ideas from other people that we met over the years and fellow practitioners. And it became this, uh, I guess you could call it a recipe book of uh, uh, design techniques that we now call game story. Interesting. And how was the collaboration with the other two co-authors came about? Uh, writing a book by yourself is a difficult process in itself. And to write a book with two other co-authors I don't know how it um, uh, transpires or how easy or difficult it is because I have written a cup, one book and right now in the middle of the second book and I know that it is a painful process to go through uh, you know, um, writing the entire book. So how was that entire experience working with the other two authors? Well, game streaming is like a cookbook. Uh, so I knew that there was, you know, it, it, there was a lot of work involved. There were 83 uh, games, I believe. Um, there's now over 150 it, it took a. It was going to take a lot of work, so it had a lot to do with how we divided up the labor. Um, well, the way we did it was, I wrote the uh, uh, front matter, the sort of the, the the introduction and the theory and the explanation, and then uh, James and Sonny, I, I recruited to um, do all the recipes. So they we took all the recipes and split them into. Um, we gave half to Sonny and half to James, and. Um, 
so we, it, you know, I think it was very successful because we divided the labor and we had a very specific um, kind of structure for all of the recipes. And Sunny, I believe, ended up drawing all of the uh, diagrams so we would have a consistent um, look and feel to all of that stuff. But yeah, we it was divide and conquer. <clears throat> Interesting. And uh, if you if you have to think back uh, the entire process of game storming. And if you have to pick up one, two, or three, maybe you know tools or games that uh, you've um, um, put in that book, which have probably had the maximum impact in all your interactions with your customers, with your clients, with all the other the kind of feedback that you've got. What would those one, two, or three uh, games be? Well, there's a section in the book uh, called core games. So there are we did all actually divide those out in the book. Let me pull out my copy here. So there are uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, about ten core games that we pulled out. Um, one of the ones that um, I use all the time is the uh, well, I use all of these all the time. <laughs> but uh, uh, the empathy map is one that I use a, an awful lot. That's a um, uh, a and it's become quite popular. That's a uh, that's a game that is all about trying to under, very quickly with a group uh, create some empathy for the target audience of whatever they're working on, or the target user, or the customer. Um, it's a great, um, it's a nice, very simple and lightweight way to get everybody uh, kind of on the same page about who this is for, or why we should care, or what we're doing, why we're doing this. Interesting. Um, do you have any interesting anecdote when? Uh, about when you use this uh, tool and if something interesting or something funny came about or something you know something interesting that came about when you tried to use this with a particular group yeah I do remember one time uh, I was in a workshop and um, I asked people to do this empathy mapping exercise around someone they were really having a difficult time with or having conflict with at work and um, uh, the the group went from you know, I asked sort of after the exercise was over. I asked what well, there were any insights, and the, the the one of the people in the group said, "Yeah, I I really hate this woman." And uh, I, um, as I was going through the empathy process, uh, I really started to understand where she was coming from, and I really feel very differently about her now. And I think I'm going to approach her and, and talk to her differently now. And uh, I think that happens quite often. That's that's often happens that people. Um, are looking at a person in their world as a an obstacle and have not thought through really where that person might be coming from, why they might be acting in certain ways, what are the feelings and emotions and experiences that might be behind that. And by the empathy mapping process takes people through these, um, you know, sort of like um, it asks people to imagine the experience that this person might be having what kind of things are they seeing in their world what kind of things do you hear them saying what might they be hearing um, from other people what are they doing and you um, you know as you go through that process you start to see how uh, you start to see the world from that person's perspective a little bit and by the time you get to asking the questions about what they might be thinking and feeling you've 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 kind of in a very um, in a in a 
in a very quick and lightweight way, you have walked a, a little bit, spent a little time in their in their shoes, seeing the world from their perspective. And it's it's a very powerful way to get a group aligned at the beginning of a, a let's say a set of activities uh, around customers or users or uh, readers or something like that. So that's very interesting because I use this method as well when I'm facilitating workshops. And one thing that always strikes me is that you know we're all inherently emotional beings, right? And uh, why is it so difficult for someone uh, to actually empathize with someone else? That's if you ask me out of all the emotions of all the things that um, we as humans inherently need in order to survive in a group, empathy is probably at the highest. And still, it's probably the most difficult. Why do you think that is so? I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> but but you. I, you I don't even have a guess. I, it's always been difficult uh, for me, and uh, I found uh, that um, sometimes breaking things down into steps and turning something into an exercise that you know it's like a checklist can be very even a checklist can be very helpful when you have um, and. Um, you know, it's like taking, I don't know if you meditate, but sometimes just, you know, there are some triggers or things that can get you take three deep breaths. And, you know, there's simple things that if you remember to do them, they will trigger a whole bunch of other uh, positive effects. And if you don't, then you might, you know, you might not ever miss them, but you might not also might not miss what you're missing. <laughs> I know. So tell me how, from gamestorming, um, uh, you moved to liminal uh, thinking, and and what was the uh, you know um, trigger that actually started you off on that path? Uh, there was an in between book called The Connected Company. So there's a there's a story, I suppose. Um, so from uh, from gamestorming, which is a very much a way a toolkit or a recipe book for helping people um, work in a more agile way. I went uh, almost way, way up to a very different level of abstraction, looking at a lot of the problems that our customers were solving and what was the thing, what were the things they were really trying to achieve. And many, a, a, a significant percentage of our customers were in some kind of business transformation uh, situation. Uh, often, uh, stuff is now goes by the name of digital transformation. They were involved in figuring out how to uh, deconstruct their company from an industrial age uh, organization and rethink it and reconfigure it as a digital um, company for the digital world. And, you know, it's like uh, what, what we're seeing in the world, and I'm sure you're seeing it, um, is that everything that can be digital and, and anything that can be software, put into software, is becoming digital, becoming um, softwareized. I think it was Mark Andreessen who said, "Software is eating the world." Every business in the future is going to be a software. It's going to be a digital business, and, and uh, the the fact is that digital businesses have a different, fundamentally different structure than industrial businesses, and um, it's much easier in a way to be a company that's born digital than to be a company that is uh, born industrial and trying to figure out how to be digital. It's like almost like a a dinosaur trying to figure out how to become a mammal. It's a difficult transition. And so I wrote a book called The Connected Company, which is really trying to understand at a very high level what is the 
digital organization? What does a connected company look like? How is it structured? What what is different about it? Um, I probably don't have time to go into all the details of that right now, but it it, it was a you know it's kind of like trying to imagine and and uh, and tell the story. You know, we all know the story now of Henry Ford and interchangeable parts and the assembly line and all mass production and all these you know things. And I was trying to think in a hundred years in the future, looking back on today, what would that book look like that described the digital organization, connected company? Uh, so that book I wrote, um, that book was uh, very well received, and a lot of uh, people in senior management read it, and they would come and um, I was getting the question, this is a very interesting now, how do we make this transformation? How do we make this, uh, how, do we, how do we begin this transformation? And that's what led to liminal thinking because in many in, in in many cases in most cases the first and most important transformation was going to be a mental transformation a psychological transformation from a way of thinking about uh, business to another way of thinking about business a way of thinking about it that was uh, somewhat linear and orderly and uh, structured hierarchically structured and organized to something that was much more Agile and adaptive and dynamic, and um, so uh, that's where the liminal thinking book came from. Is it started out as an exploration of agile, uh, agile approaches in software design, uh, but it quickly expanded into something that was much more about psychological agility and uh, uh, kind of a uh, leadership mindset for for a digital economy. Yeah. So you talk about um, beliefs and you know um, some of the. Um, uh, strengths and weaknesses that come from uh, beliefs. You talk about beliefs are models. You talk about beliefs are created, and you know what that means when it comes to uh, someone wanting to transform himself or herself, and what that belief does. So, if you could just maybe you know um, talk to us about what do you think is probably um, one or two things which you have seen um, that people. Uh, get stuck in or the people that if they do that one switch can have the maximum impact uh, in their lives because I also understand that you know each one of us has their own mental models of the world that they live in uh, they imagine stuff they kind of you know um, what we look at or what we perceive the world probably it's not the real world at all I mean we are now moving into philosophical realm uh, Hinduism and all those stuff but in reality, that's the case. You know what the way I perceive the world and the way uh, my son perceives the world or my colleague perceives the world is very very different. And it is these beliefs which either stop us or actually um, um, allow us to grow uh, into something which we want to. So, in all your research, what is that one or two things that you found are probably the most fundamental and can have the most transformative power uh, when done well? Okay, I'll give you two. Uh, one is uh, travel. I mean, simply find ways to get outside your culture and get into, immerse yourself in another culture. You know, uh, travel the world. Um, uh, spend some time in a city where you don't speak the language and you don't understand the culture. Um, feel your way through figuring that out. Um if you if you're unable to travel for whatever reason, try and find uh, news or uh, other sources of information that are radically different than your own. Um, 
try and find uh, uh, ways of perceiving the world that might be opposite. Um, you know, if, if um, uh, you know if you're if you're like for example, uh, you know if you're in India, like uh, to read the Pakistani news, read the opinion pieces in the Pakistan. You know, you're going to find some things that are going to be uh, probably very interesting, right? Very different. Um, read the opinion pieces of people who have very different opinions than you. So this is these are all ways of expanding your experience and trying to see the world through other eyes. Um, if you find yourself getting emotional as you're experiencing or reading these things, then you you want to ask yourself what about that emotion and try and really investigate that emotion. What is it that makes you feel angry or upset or um, uh, happy when you're reading something? Why is it that you're reacting in the way that you are? These are ways of getting in touch with your beliefs and your your perspective, especially how your perspective might be different uh, than others. Um, the other one is simply to uh, turn off your autopilot because we all. And the thing is, you know, uh, if you're trying to create change in the world, you uh, you know you can't change the past. We all know the past is uh, not something that's changeable, and the future doesn't exist. Yeah, so the only time that change is really possible, the only time you can do anything to create change is in the present moment. And yet, often we're not in the present moment. We're, we're physically there, but mentally we are thinking about the future, about that next thing we're going to do, or we're, we're reliving something from our past, or we're daydreaming. And uh, the, one of the best ways that I've found to bring yourself back into the present moment is simply to turn off your autopilot. You don't have to have a plan, except for not doing what you would typically do. If you think about it this way, uh, you probably if you go to work in the morning, you, have, you may have a route that you take every day, that you always go the same way to, uh, to work. That's a routine, that's a what I would call an autopilot. And the autopilots can be good because they allow you to focus in, on other things and, and daydream and think about other things. But if you really want to focus on what you're doing, make take a route that you've never taken before. Because simply taking that route that you've never taken before will force you to pay attention and will uh, bring you automatically will bring you back in the moment where you can start paying attention to what's really going on around you. And this is really useful when you start to think about the routines and habits that you have in interacting with other people in your life. What you have these autopilot, you know, things. I'll just give you one very tiny example. Um, you know, my wife. Uh, one day, my wife Michelle asked me, um, "Hey, I'm going." She said, "Hey, I'm going to the grocery store. Can I pick anything up for you while I'm there?" And this is a question she asked me pretty often. And uh, the autopilot would be, "Yeah, okay. I need some, you know, uh, milk or whatever." But the, uh, at the end of the day, uh, you know, I simply, to, to, just do one simple change, I, uh, I realized that I had no, nothing on my calendar for the next hour, and I said, can I go with you? And that flipped the whole day. And you can imagine, maybe, I mean, she was moved. She was happy. Uh, we uh, went to the grocery store together. I mean, this is not something that's very strange or difficult to do, but it was definitely not autopilot for our relationship, and it meant a lot to her. I think that um, you have these micro moments every day, probably hundreds of thousands of these moments where you can turn, choose to switch off your autopilot and take a different path. And the fact is that every one of those different paths could lead you into a magical territory.
and there's these, these doors are around you all the time. The only way that you can bring yourself to notice those doors is to shut off your autopilot. Interesting. The, the one thing that I've kind of observed in, in the little conversation that I've had so far with you is that you have this ability to kind of, you know, sit back and observe what you're doing um, as a third person. And that's a very critical ability that uh, uh, if, if we are able to develop helps us not only in understanding what we are doing, understanding what our belief systems are, but also, as you rightly said, you know, how do you turn magic into science? So why do you think uh, or how do you think you picked up this ability and uh, how do you think someone else, if they want to, can pick up this ability? It's a hard one. It actually takes a practice and, and focus. I think um, you can you can get there, I think, by cultivating a practice. Uh, I think I do think meditation is not helpful. Uh, and meditation in a way is bringing yourself back to yourself, or, or in another way, it's also getting out of yourself. It's a little bit of both, I suppose. You, um, I think it's also a matter of just creating enough space for yourself to pause and reflect on what's going on in this moment. Um, get in touch with your own, if you have an emotional feeling or reaction, and take a breath and focus and ask yourself, why is it that I'm feeling? I mean, we've all been in a situation, I'm not angry, I'm not angry, right? Like, <laughs> I mean, where, where the message and the, um, and, the, and the way that the message is being conveyed are in conflict. And of course, you know, you're, you're of course you, you know, people hear, when you, if you hear someone say that, you hear that they are angry, right? They're, they're even angry that they're being someone saying that they're angry, <laughs> and uh, so um, and you can you know you know I think it's very difficult to take a deep, deep breath in those moments and to ask yourself why am I what am I you know maybe maybe you are angry maybe you're not angry but you're feeling something you're feeling some kind of a strong emotion and trying to understand and ask yourself what is that emotion what am I feeling. Uh, where do I think that might be coming from? I think those, it's, yeah, it's hard. We, we, you know, there's a, there's more than one level that you can operate on in life. And, uh, there's a superficial level where you're not actually asking yourself those deep questions. And then there's a level where you're asking yourself to, you're really challenging yourself. And, and, uh, I think the second one of those is the one that leads to growth. Interesting. And I, I, um, I also sense that you know it is all about slowing down as well and not just rushing through uh, the day. Uh, it's it's about slowing down, taking those breaths, taking those pauses, little pauses, taking those um, one or two seconds to reflect. Uh, is that um, something that um, uh, you've seen you yourself doing quite often? Do you think you are a very calm person and you know slows things down as well? I don't know. Yeah, I. <laughs> I think, I mean, uh, I do think slowing down is a big part of it, and you can't slow down if you have too much to do. So part of uh, finding, creating the space for yourself to slow down is figuring out, I mean, if you're, if you're an entrepreneur, like a lot of your listeners are, um, you're probably good at creating opportunities. And... Uh, 
you can create a lot more opportunities usually than you ever could follow through on. So to create space for yourself to slow down means uh, it's a it's a it's not only a, a slowing down thing; it's a focus thing. You have to figure out what are those things I'm going to say no to. What are those nine things I'm going to say no to so I can focus on the one thing that I really want to want to do well. And um, yeah, it's uh, it's hard when you're when you're an entrepreneur and you want to follow every thread uh, to say no to things, but it's an there's an art to that. It's also an, uh, that's another one of the more difficult things is to learning to say no. Yeah. So the other um, 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 thing that I wanted to explore was: Do you think this is something that uh, comes inherently well, um, uh, or rather, let me rephrase this: Do you think being able to slow down and being able to do this kind of a self-reflection has an impact on the way uh, you express yourself um, visually? Is there any connection between that? Um, would you ask that again? So the ability to slow down um, things and the ability to reflect on what is happening, the ability to be in the moment. Do you think all of these has an impact on how good you are when it comes to you know visual presentation of information? You know, being visual. Um, uh, yeah, I think there's a relationship between the two. I don't know which is the source and which is. I mean, maybe they're re- reciprocal. Um, I do believe that um, whether it's writing or drawing, uh, some way, you know, cultivating a uh, an a- approach where you are capturing your thoughts and reflecting on the things that you're doing and thinking about them and thinking about how to structure them, the, the process of writing a book, the process of making a picture of something that's visually complex is the process of uh, simplification, clarification, refinement, uh, purification. It's a... It is a, a practice of thinking about thinking, reflecting. And um, I do think, for me, uh, I don't know if I was reflecting and then I started drawing or if I started drawing and realized I was reflecting. That's probably a little bit of both. Uh, those things are intertwined. But I do think there, there's a relationship there between... Uh, you know, you may have a bunch of thoughts, but if you have to sit down and put them into a blog post or an article, you're going to think about, you're going to reflect on them, you're going to think a little bit more deeply about them, and if you put that out there and you start reading the comments and reflecting on what other people, how other people react to them positively or negatively, that's going to also cause you to reflect and think. So I do think there's a, definitely a, a very strong uh, virtual cycle that happens when you are uh, when you're when you're reflecting, writing, visualizing, explaining, and uh, you know, any storyteller will realize that they need to be focused on the people they're telling the story to and how they react, and that's what makes you a better storyteller. But also, uh, and it has a lot of also other positive effects. I think. Interesting, and um, if I may ask. Um, during this process of writing this book, is there any specific belief that you um, held you had held deeply before starting the book, which completely changed while the process of writing this book? Yeah, I mean there are several. Uh, so. Um, 
one, I believe that uh, agile approaches were going to be the future of work. I, I don't believe that anymore. I believe they're, they're part of it, but not all of it. Um, I think I had beliefs about my relationships that were uh, unchangeable or fixed that have changed. Um, uh, the, even the idea that I was, even the, even the idea that I was actually planning to write the book about changed. Uh, it went from being a book about agile and agility to a book about um, beliefs. So even the book itself, and that was an interesting conversation with a publisher, as you can imagine, going back to him and saying, you know, I, I can't write the book I promised to write. I have to write a different book now because of what I'm learning as I'm writing it. So there was a, and there was a valley of despair in the middle there where the, uh, the book that I had planned to write had fallen apart and it completely uh, disintegrated and the book that I uh, needed to write had not emerged yet. So it was pretty, it was a rough time. <laughs> I can imagine that. And um, uh, is there anything that uh, uh, you, anything else that you learned in the process of writing this book that um, you thought was surprising or interesting? Just about everything I learned in the process of writing a book was surprising and interesting. And it's, uh, anything I that mean, stands out? <laughs> uh, well, I mean, the idea that beliefs are created, that they are creative constructions, that they, we make them, that they don't just happen. Um, to me, that's a very powerful idea. And um, once you start to think, think it through and understand it, you, uh, it's undeniable. Uh, but I don't think I had that understanding before I started writing the book. Uh, it's, a powerful, it's a powerful notion because if you can create, if you've created the beliefs that you have, you can create different beliefs. You can create them again. You can recreate them. You, even, even beliefs about yourself that are foundational to your identity that are core to who you think you are, um, you can rewrite those beliefs. Um, that's a powerful thought because that gives you the ability to say, I can, re I can truly reinvent myself. Interesting. Reminds me of um, um, a book that I had read sometime back uh, by Benjamin Zanders and uh, Rosamund Zanders called The Art of Possibility, in which mm -hmm. they call this entire thing as, you know, it's all invented. And uh, if it's all invented, you can invent something new as well. And it's all up to us in our hands. And uh, it's such a simple concept, but yet such a difficult thing to understand. Um, I have I've spoken about this to so many people. I've spoken about this to myself and I still find it so difficult to change uh, the, the, uh, the belief systems that I have when I know that this is something that can be changed. And this is yeah. such a powerful concept as you rightly say. Very interesting. So let's just switch track a little bit and um, try to understand uh, um, a little more. I mean, who's the most inspiring person that you've ever met? And why is that person the most inspiring person that you've ever met? Well, I've never met him, but I'm, since we're talking here, I have to mention Gandhi. I mean, uh, of course, I, I didn't meet the man. <laughs> uh, but um, I'm assuming that there's many people in your audience that are uh, from India, so I have to... I have to mention him just as probably one of the most inspiring, one of the more inspiring people in history. 
Um, because he did, he did sort of uh, take a bunch of beliefs and really transform them. And uh, um, nobody's perfect, of course, but uh, I think that um, if you just um, something as simple as you know making salt, going to the beach and making salt, and it just sort of toppled an empire. Can you imagine? <laughs> I mean, just think about that. For, I mean, how 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 simple it's simply how 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 uh, um, you know um, I think there's there are uh, there are tremendous lessons there in uh, in uh, mental patterns and like the art of possibility. I mean, really. Um, so in terms of the people that I met. There was a man named uh, Michael Doyle who was very inspiring to me. He was uh, he's, he's he's passed away now, but uh, he wrote a book called uh, "Making Meetings Work," which was in a way a precursor to game storming. It was written in the seventies, and uh, he was uh, he was my Obi Wan, I guess you could say, my my uh, mentor, and uh, he. What was it about him? I think that he had a uh, he had a tremendous ability to be in the moment and to empathize and to be a part of um, and to create a moment. He was a um, it's it's hard to describe, but he had a, uh, a tremendous presence that he brought to everything that he did. In fact, uh, he was going to write the forward to Gangstarming, but he died before he could, uh, before I could get him to write it. Uh, but he, uh, he's a, he was a tremendous, tremendous man. I don't know that I can tell you that much about him. What I'll give you one anecdote. Um, he, uh, he showed up in St. Louis to visit me. He was, he lived in San Francisco. He showed up, uh, and I made some comment about uh, time zones. And you must be feeling, uh, maybe you're feeling a little tired because of the time zone change or something like that. And he just said, he looked at me and said, I don't do time zones. Wherever I am, that's what time it is for me. Wow. <laughs> Whatever, what time it is where I am, that's what time it is for me. And I, was, I don't know why that struck me. Uh, but again, it was, I think, a, a matter of his, it was almost mind over matter. And he had the ability to be there in a very real way, always. And I think that was something that I, I took away. I've always aspired to bring to my interactions with other people is to find a way to be there with them, to truly be there. Interesting. It's very hard to do. Yeah, it is. It is incredibly hard to do. So, um, uh, what is something that you see in your world right now? You know, in the world that you occupy, that blows your mind, and that you think you know is like fabulous. Oh, fabulous! There are things that blow my mind that are not fabulous. <laughs> Let's see, fabulous. Um, well, I do think that the changes. I, I think that the changes that are happening in the software and the Internet of Things. I do think there's a tremendous magical possibility. We are now in an age of the world where the biggest limitation to what we could achieve is our own imagination. I mean, it's not gravity. It's not. Um, it's what what we can imagine because almost anything that we can imagine, we can actually make happen. We have this 
tremendous power at our fingertips, and it's uh, that power is increasing exponentially every day. Um, when in history has the biggest limitation been our imagination? I mean, our imagination has always been way ahead of what's possible, and now we're at, a, at an age where our imagination is behind. Our imagination, our creativity is what needs to keep up with the potential. Um, to me, I find that inspiring, and uh, as a creative guy, I find it tremendously exciting. There are things, I mean, just to think about all the things that we can't yet even imagine that are already possible. I mean, and you see it all the time with uh, startups and things, something like, you know, Uber, for example, you know, uh, simply an exercise in deconstructing and reconstructing and recreating and reimagining in their Airbnb is another one. They're, there are the, there's uh, there's no limit really <laughs> interesting so uh, if that asks for a follow up question you know do you have any habits or do you have any routines that actually help you in your creative process or what does your creative process look like uh, i create a lot of open space a lot of downtime for myself to just to think to read to reflect to um, zone out I mean, uh, go for a walk. I, I make, uh, I intentionally create negative space in my life, open space, white space. So, uh, you know, for example, when I wake up, I will uh, not just reach to the phone and start looking at Facebook right away, but take some time to think about what, you know, what, what was going on in my dreams last night? What was happening there? Uh, what's going on around me? I think that's probably the most important practice because the older you get, the busier you get, and the more it really takes an intentional effort to create that open space. Your calendar fills up, you know, um, and so you've got to block it out. You've got to block out, uh, you know, space for thinking. Interesting. So simple uh, yet so uh, difficult to do uh, in the lives mm-hmm. that we live in. Yeah. So. Um, Maybe, you know, let's talk a little bit about um, uh, what uh, gives you a lot of joy, you know, what what are probably one or two fun things that really matter to you, which you really want to do and which you always make time for, which allows you to replenish yourself. Because one of the things that I have seen in a lot of creative people, including myself, is that, you know, the entire process of creating something new is, is it takes a lot of lot from you as a person and how do you fill that well again is as important as the amount of creativity that comes out of you uh, some have this habit of listening to music some have this ability uh, to go out and uh, uh, play uh, themselves to get so tired and that that actually helps them you know, um, you know bring in that or fill in the well of creativity as you may call it so what is it that you do for fun which helps you uh, in your creative process? <laughs> well, the creative projects are my fun. In fact, <laughs> I find when I, um, I find if I don't have a, uh, a project that I'm excited about, I get depressed. So I, I need that. Um, for me, uh, there's always a creative project happening. And sometimes there's been periods of my life where I've been making paintings there have been periods of my life where I've been writing a book. Um, there are periods where I'm just drawing. Uh, right now, um, 
right now I'm, you know, working on these, uh, you know, visual explanations. You know, these are my creative, this is my creative uh, joy right now. I'm mean, creating these um, pictorial explanations of, of complex topics. I mean, there's a, um, you know, there's this, uh, this work, this art form that I love that is called visual explanation. And, um, I also make sure that I make time to read, uh, things that are not simply, um, posts or articles on Facebook. I read books. Um, you know, here's an example. I was, I've been reading about Chinese landscape and, you know, this, the, one of the ideas in, in Chinese landscape is that you can, um, uh, a lot of Chinese landscape is almost a playground for the mind where you've got mountains. They're not necessarily intended to be realistic as much as a, uh, an ex, a thing that you can explore. And so you've got mountains and they've got a path through the mountains and you, know, you can follow along, uh, the path. And uh, that's what this is. I mean, this was inspired by the Chinese landscape and you know, I'm reading about Chinese landscape, but the, this is a story about, um, conversion on websites. So this is a, these, these are web pages, but they're also mountains. And this is a this is a story, but it's also a mountain path uh, you can walk along and explore. Um, so a lot of times, the space that I make for reading about history or uh, philosophy or ideas creates um, ripple effects in the other creative acts. So I think there's something very um, important to me about not just reading what comes across my Facebook stream every day, but actually focusing on what are the things that I'm really curious about and want to learn about and want to know more about and reading about those things and kind of actually going and finding the book and, and reading it. So that actually begs the next question, which um, I always ask all my guests is, you know, um, how do you continue to stay yourself or keep yourself up to date uh, in, in the field of work that you're doing? Uh, what is your uh, way of learning and staying on top of things? I, I mean, you just said re reading stuff that doesn't necessarily come out of your Facebook stream. But is there anything else that you actively do to continue to learn, to continue to evolve as well, apart from reading uh, specific kind of books? <laughs> uh, yeah, I actually have a sort of a timeless approach in the sense that I don't worry about staying on top of things. Um, I focus on... You know, everything that we invent has, has been invented before. I mean, there... It, you know, there's so many lessons from history. You know, when I look to, um, you know, when I look to create a, a, an amazing uh, visual explanation, right? Uh, I'm not. I mean, you can't help but see stay current. You can't help but see what's going on around you in the current state. But um, it takes an effort of will to go look at Chinese lands, ancient Chinese landscapes. I mean, I'm looking at Chinese landscapes. I'm looking at uh, uh, hieroglyphics. You know, I'm, I'm looking at uh, I'm looking at illuminated manuscripts. You know, this is not. I mean, I don't know if you'd call this the same current. It's like actually, um, to me, it's about. It's not about so much about staying current. You can't help but stay current these days. You're surrounded by uh, the modern moment. What's to me is important is to keep that keep all that stuff anchored in the, in the sense of the context that we, of, of everything that has come before and, uh, kind of staying anchored to that. So I don't know. I don't, I don't, I mean, there is a lot going on and I think that I've created a life that automatically puts me, I mean, I'm working with, uh, large organ 
organizations that are always thinking about the future or the next thing. So I don't need to, to work hard to stay in touch with the moment. What I need to work hard to do is to stay in touch with uh, the past, like the history. Interesting. So any any specific books or any um, piece of art or um, thing that you have come across which you would like to uh, recommend to our um, listeners? So I, uh, I just saw the book uh, that you showed, which is the illustrated. Um, so what is the book that you showed just now? The one about the illuminated manuscripts. Yeah, illuminated. Yeah, illuminated manuscripts. What the is history that of illuminated manuscripts? Yeah, it's a lovely book. It's okay. got lots of pictures. I like books with pictures in them. Yeah, so that looks to be a very interesting book, and I'm sure that's not something that um, my audience would have ever come across. So that also helps in. Actually, going breaking the routine and you know trying to read something or trying to find something which is completely out of their world, maybe it sparks some. Uh, well, that's kind of what I was saying about experiences. You know, to expand your experience, step into territory that you think you might be interested in exploring. I mean, the the library is a wonderful place. It's full of you know. Um, you're gonna if you go to a library or a bookstore, you will always bump into things you were not looking for, which is maybe different than what happens when you go to Amazon or you go online. Um, you're you're gonna find these accidental uh, things, and sometimes, uh, uh, yeah, give yourself permission to expand the scope of what you're thinking about and the look. I mean, there's there's amazing things that have been created in the in the uh, in the world, and I think, I mean, imagine living in India, you're surrounded by uh, uh, thousands of years of history all the time around you. Maybe it's just a matter of taking a minute. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think we're kind of nearing the time that we have um, uh, for this conversation. So uh, I'd like to ask you one question that um, we always ask all our guests, which is the show is called Pushing Beyond the Obvious. So what is so obvious to you that people still miss all the time? I think the, this is probably a little meta, but I think the the fact that the thing that people miss all the time is that they're they're obvious is not so obvious, and that what's obvious to you is not obvious to other people. And you you see this in these uh, Facebook arguments that erupt all the time, where some news item comes out, and and two people have such vastly different uh, interpretations of what is obvious to them that they end up saying about each other, well, this. You know, anyone who who doesn't see this obvious must be crazy or insane or an uh, idiot or stupid. And the fact is that this is really, um, you know, if your if your obvious is is creating a world where um, half of the people in the world uh, that disagree with you or have a different obvious are stupid or crazy, then you're missing something important uh, because half the people in the world are not stupid or crazy, and so. Uh, you know, the question is, what, what is it about your obvious that is not obvious to others? And what is it about their obvious that is not obvious to you? And how can you engage in a dialogue and actually truly try to understand where all these obviouses are coming from? And why is it that something that feels obvious to you is not obvious to others and vice versa? Interesting. So um, uh, one last question before we kind of conclude, which is, if you want, um, what is one or two things that you want the listeners to go out and do um, um, once they finish listening to this conversation, which you think can have a significant impact on their lives? 
All right, well, I'll connect it with another thing, something that I do think is pretty obvious that people miss often, is that uh, business, at its core, business is actually pretty simple. You you have uh, uh, three numbers. You have the amount of money that you bring in, you have the amount of money that you spend, and if there's a difference between those, you have a profit. So the core, at the core, our business is incredibly simple. Make more money than you spend. There's only a couple ways to do that. You can increase the amount that you make or you can reduce the amount that you spend. And whether you're a salaried employee or an entrepreneur, these are all these are all true. You you know, if you are in debt, you are not saving. You're you're not profitable. As a, if if you're working a day job and you have a salary and you have more money on your credit card than you have in your bank account, then you are not profitable. <laughs> if you're a business, you go out of business eventually. Um, if you have more in your saving account than you have in your credit card, then you're profitable. Um, this is to me a pretty obvious thing that um, the majority of people in the world have are not profitable. <laughs> well, that, that's kind of a problem in the long term because somebody's going to have to pay that back or not going to pay it back something that they loaned at the end of the day. Uh, the what I would say uh, in terms of getting out there and, and doing things is. Um, I, I believe that you should not, you, that one of the biggest, the two the two of the biggest challenges for people, two of the biggest obstacles, one is uh, simply fear. Um, so if you're in doubt about anything, go towards the thing that you fear the most. Um, that's probably the thing that you should be doing. You probably know at some level uh, the fact that you uh, have fear is what's keeping you. If fear is keeping you from doing something, just do it. And then the second thing which is related is uh don't wait till something is finished before you put it out in the world because the more finished it is, the more precious you're going to feel about it, the less you're going to be able to take feedback and, and get um, uh, constructive feedback and incorporate that into it. When you put something out in the world that's simply a really rough sketch or a very rough idea, uh, you're putting it out before you're emotionally attached to it. You can actually listen better to the feedback and you'll be able to improve it more. So. The sooner you can get something, I'm a real big believer in the minimum viable product. The sooner you can get something out into the world, um, the better. Uh, because the sooner you get it out in the world, the sooner you can start to improve it. So, and I think they're related because a lot of times the reason you're not putting a thing out in the world is you're afraid of what you might hear, the feedback you might get. And whether it's a book or a software product or a work of art or whatever it might be, um, the, uh, uh, the that feedback is not necessarily a uh, always feedback that needs to be followed, but it's important to hear it and to understand it and to incorporate it. So um, get over the fear, get the thing out there, as ugly as your baby might be, get it out there and start getting the, the feedback on it so you can start making it better. Super. So thanks a lot, um, uh, Dave. I think it was a brilliant conversation. I'm sure that people who are listening to this will actually take away a lot of learnings and um, a lot of interesting uh, stuff for them. So where can people connect with you? Uh, I'm pretty easy to find. I'm at Dave Gray on Twitter, D-A-V-E-G-R-A-Y. Um, I'm not sure if that's how. And then I'm, uh, I have my website is uh, explainer.com, X-P-L-A-N-E-R.com. But you can find that from Twitter as well. I think that's probably how you found me, right? Yeah, that's right. And and the books are um, uh, the uh, Game Storming, the Connected Company, and uh, the latest one being Liminal Thinking. Yes. Uh, please go out and buy those books and uh, and read them. So thanks a lot, Dave, for taking time and talking to us today. Thank you. Thank you so much, Chikesh. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Pushing Beyond the Obvious. If you like the show and would like to support, please head over to iTunes or wherever you are listening to this show and rate us and write a review. Till next time, have fun.